welcome to the WSU Wheat Beat Podcast. I'm your host, Drew Lyon, and I want to thank you for joining me as we explore the world of small grains production and research at Washington State University. In each episode, I speak with researchers from WSU and the USDA ARS to provide you with insights into the latest research on wheat and barley production. If you enjoy the WSU Wheat Beat Podcast, do us a favor and subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast app and leave us a review so others can find the show too. My guest today is Dr. Amber Havermal. Amber is a research assistant professor in the Department of Crop and Soil Sciences at WSU with expertise in molecular biology, protein biochemistry, seed physiology, and hormone signaling. Prior to getting her PhD at Washington State University, she worked in industry and has always been involved in projects occurring at the intersection between basic and applied research. In her current role, Amber is focusing on the physiological mechanisms that contribute to the low-falling numbers in wheat, and she has been developing a new rapid immunoassay for low-falling number detection. Hello, Amber. Hi, Drew. Thanks for having me. Uh, always a pleasure to have you on. Um, recently, uh, you received just under $40,000 of funding from the Washington Grain Commission in fiscal year 2024, which is the current fiscal year, to support your work on the development of 21st century alpha amylase immunoassays. I have trouble with that word. <laughs> it's Im- a immunoassays <laughs> to replace the Hager Purton falling numbers method. What does this money allow you to do that wouldn't get done without it? Well, this money has been hugely instrumental, um, and it was actually part of a big effort to leverage um, national dollars through the Foundation for Food and Agricultural Research, um, the FFAR program. And so in that program, um, that program requires... um, matching funding, essentially, uh, from stakeholders, so a a dollar-for-dollar match. And the funding that came directly from the Washington Grain Commission um, was hugely important for leveraging those dollars. Specifically, uh, that money will go toward helping to pay salaries uh, for myself and others on the project. It will help to buy really important resources um, because some of the experiments that we're actually doing are quite quite expensive and would be cost prohibitive otherwise. Um, it's also going to be um, used for extension efforts um, and outreach, um, and that's probably um, one of the biggest things that, that it'll be used directed towards um, as the project progresses. Okay. So we're hugely grateful for the support, um, and we wouldn't be in the situation doing the project that we're currently doing without it. Yeah, and I know the Washington Grain Commission likes it when the, when their funds can be leveraged to get more dollars, which is exactly what it's done here. Yes, yeah. yes. Yeah, very good. So how, how is your work on the project progressing? So just to kind of give a brief update on project um, where we're at. Uh, so the this particular project started in February of, what year are we in now? <laughs> 2023. So we're about six months in into this particular project and things have been going really well. Um, we are running to keep up. Um, but uh, back in April, we had our industry collaborators, the, those that are helping us to scale the rapid test uh, visit, 
the Pacific Northwest and actually visit with the Grain Commission and folks at WSU doing some of the research as well as the elevators to really tie together um, all of the pieces of the grain chain to have a better understanding of who they're going to be working with and why it's so vitally important that we have a test that works for this region and the grain chain um, at large. So um, we are moving along really swiftly. Um, We are in the thick of acquiring samples right now from our elevator collaborators that will then be um, used for the calibration of the rapid test. So the point of the calibration is to actually um, have the rapid test report out in a similar fashion to the falling numbers test. So a metric that folks using the falling numbers test understand. Um, And you would think that it would be easy to to source samples, but, you know, around here we hope that we don't have a low falling numbers event because we know that that's bad for growers, but also we need samples that have problems with falling numbers in order to do the calibration. So it's been a really interesting logistic challenge to get those things to come together, but um, things are moving along really well. Um, I'm also happy to report that we have a new graduate student who started this summer. His name is Jack Kelly. I know he's really interested in the future to do one of these episodes with you. Um, He's going to be working with me on some of the proteomic work and some of the biochemistry work um, to better understand the physiology of LMA in PHS that cause low falling numbers in wheat. Okay. So um, I'm just kind of curious. You're working on this uh, rapid test, um, an immunoassay. How is that different? And I'm kind of curious, can can that test, you said you reports back kind of like the falling number. So it's going to be more, when I think of immunoassay, I I think of, you know, the little little line on on the COVID test or something, right? You have it or you don't have it. But will this test be able to tell you whether your falling number is above 300 and below 300 or just how much it is? Yeah. So, and your your question is a great one. So um, just to give a, de- a brief definition about a, a, what an immunoassay is, um, an immunoassay is just a procedure that detects a specific target using antibodies. Um, and it's different than a falling numbers test. So the the, fall, the way the falling numbers test works is to indirectly measure starch degradation due to an enzyme called alpha amylase. So um, for those that that have heard us talk about it before, it is affectionately referred to as the gravy test. So in a falling numbers test, you just mix water and meal, wheat meal together, and then you heat it to form a gravy. You drop a weight through it, and starch that has a lot of integrity is thick, and so it takes a long time for that weight to fall through, whereas starch that's been broken down by alpha amylase has less integrity, and so that weight falls through very quickly. Um, And so with the falling numbers test, you get an indication of starch integrity, but you don't really get a sense for how much alpha amylase is there. With an immunoassay, on the other hand, um, we're able to quantify the amount of alpha amylase that 
leads to, say, a falling number below 300? Or, or how much is there for a 300? And so what we're trying to do, because the industry all the way through the grain train is used to uh, falling numbers report a uh, number of seconds that, you know, a 300 second as you referred to, what we're doing is we are calibrating the rapid tests so that two samples of known falling numbers so that we have um, a quantifiable measure of alpha amylase associated with a falling number of 300 or 275 or 250. Um, and you asked about whether or not this is just simply going to be a yes or no answer um, with the fall, with the new test that we're developing. And actually, what's nice about immunoassays is that they can be developed um, in multiple ways. So at the most simplest level, a dipstick. So what you talked about, a COVID test. So you get kind of a color metric report based on the amount of the target protein that's there. It's either absent or it's really red. Um, you can also develop these tests to quantify or be more high throughput. So you can develop a 96-well platform. Um, and so what we're envisioning is that depending on where they will be used will determine the format. So for example, um, at an elevator, when they are trying to put the grain away or bin the grain, um, you know, there's not a whole lot of time to have a fancy laboratory 96-well platform. You know, the, the amount of time that it takes from when the truck arrives to the scale to when the truck is offloading at the pit is maybe only five minutes. So having a lot of equipment or really fiddly equipment um, isn't useful at the elevator. So having a dipstick or something that's small that can be run quickly is because, you know, there they're just simply asking yes or no, do we have a problem or don't we? Um, the, breeding, the breeding side, on the other hand, so the breeders, you know, as they're breeding for resistance to the causes of low-falling numbers, they may want to know more about physiology or they may want to implement this early in their breeding programs before they're at the stage of trialing varieties out in the field. Um, so they may have thousands of lines that they're looking to get a sense of, and so dipstick tests may not be the most practical way to screen 5,000 lines, you know. So in that case, you know, having a an immunoassay that's higher throughput, like a 96-well version or something like that, um, is going to be more efficient and um, useful in those sorts of applications. Okay. When you yeah. talk about a 96-cell, for those who might not know what that is, um, what, what is, is that? It's here? just, uh, it's, it's, uh, 96 well plate. So it's a plate with 96 little micro wells that you can do an individual reaction in, in each one of those. Um, it's really common to use that sort of setup for, um, DNA and RNA extractions. And, um, it's kind of one of the common tools in our tool chest in the laboratory. Yeah. In the laboratory, but you, you're not going to find them out and about very no, not not. It's definitely not a field application. Yeah. Okay, so um, 
when or why did the effort to develop this new test begin? Oh, that's a great story. And um, yeah, it's had, it's, had, it's had quite the history and a lot of people involved pushing towards this effort. So um, just to kind of give you a background, a little bit of background about myself. So I started on the project in about 2018. And at that point, um, a lot of people had already been pushing for a rapid test for, for several years. And recently, in a series of interviews uh, with, with critical folks in the grain chain and critical stakeholders, um, I was meeting with Alex McGregor. Actually, my, col- my colleague Allison Thompson and I were and he gifted us a stack of communications from the very beginning of pushing for this effort, so in 2016. So um, in 2016, there was a very, very large falling numbers event that um, impacted the Pacific Northwest. And unlike previous years or, you know, many of the years since, um, it happened everywhere. Uh, So there really wasn't enough grain, sound grain in the system, in the grain chain to counteract um, all of the low falling numbers. And so a lot of folks, a lot of farmers were um, impacted very negatively uh, because they were docked a lot. I think there were, it's estimated anywhere from 30 to $100 million in losses in the Pacific Northwest in 2016. So um, it was then that folks like Alex and the late Craig Morris and Jim Moyer kind of put their heads together and said, okay, <laughs> we need a better way to evaluate the quality of the grain at receival stations. Um, and that effort um, has been moving forward ever since. Okay. So you've talked about it a little bit, but what are, what are some of the challenges and the benefits of a new test like this? So I think that um, some of the challenges with any new technology is just dealing with the normal logistical barriers that come up, right? So I, I spoke about one a little bit earlier, you know, just getting samples to people that actually, for the purposes of calibration, that have been negatively impacted by a falling number event. You know, the past couple of years in the Pacific Northwest, it's been pretty quiet. Um, So, you know, making sure that we're, we're connected with not only you know, people in our immediate region, but across the United States to help us with that effort. Um, And, you know, some of the other challenges are just with educating people about how the test works, um, what its benefits are, what its strengths and weaknesses are, um, and then with, you know, having people who are interested in actually willing to, you know, validate a new test, you know, early adopters. And and some people are really um, excited um, to try new things, and and some people are more cautious um, because, you know, there's been a lot of new technology that's come on the market, and 
you know, sometimes it performs really well and sometimes it doesn't perform well. So um, the benefits of the development of a new rapid test are hopefully that um, if it performs the way that the industry needs it to, it will be able to allow uh, receival stations to start segregating grain, hopefully in real time. Um, hopefully it'll provide an early warning for folks, you know, if there are problems. And then hopefully it can be used not as a post-harvest uh, management tool, but also as a pre-harvest management tool. Um, so something that can be utilized by the breeders um, to help develop new lines that are, are resistant. Okay. You've spoken about um, some of the stakeholders in this in this uh, business, I guess, who, yes. who might be affected by this test. Who, who do you see, it sounds to me like it could be quite a, a large group interested in this. Who, who do you see belonging in that group and do they all support it or are there some naysayers in there? Or? Yeah, the, the um, we have, from the perspective of the, the project itself, I think anybody that's in the grain chain is a potential stakeholder for this project. Um, so, you know, we're talking about researchers, we're talking about elevator workers, we're talking about biller, bakers, millers, and folks that are, you know, at the export terminals. Um, and when speaking with people, um, you know, the, the elevator, the, the most imminent uh, folks that, like, the, the point of first need seems to be with management at the elevators. Um, and we typically have people that fall into two groups um, when I've been speaking to to different groups within the grain chain. And those are people, everyone has said, yes, we need a new test. But um, we have those that are early adopters and those that are more cautious that want to see how it performs. Um, and both are valid. So uh, as a strategy with this project moving forward, what we have done is we have strategically partnered with folks that have identified themselves as early adopters. And they are at the elevators. They're in research. They are doing extension. They are like at the wheat marketing center doing education. You know, so we have um, key people uh, at every link in the chain essentially who is both testing, will be testing the test in real time, providing feedback about how it can be improved, and also who's working with the industry at large to provide opportunities for in, uh, for extension and feedback and, and ways to improve methodology moving forward. Okay. So, so what do you see as some of the barriers and or benefits to adoption of, of this new test? I think I think some of the biggest barriers that have been reported to us um, are that because of the way that the grain and specifically in the Pacific Northwest moves for export, it's our export um, export uh, industry stakeholders that may not 
be early adopters of this. So from the standpoint of the export terminals and those that are contracting with um, U.S. wheat associates for Pacific Northwest white wheat, you know, the industry standard is a falling number of 300 seconds or better. Um, So, but people have been really, really open about what it would take for adoption. And so we know that we have to have biggest standards. And we know that we have to have um, ACC-approved methodology. And um, we have been told that, you know, with time, it is likely that our biggest um, naysayers, if you will, or people that are, are used to the old technology, once they see performance, will likely adopt. Um, so, and then, you know, the benefits for um, adoption have been, you know, we have folks at the local elevators that are, like, itching to get their hands on something that they can use in, in the, the heat of, of harvest to help them better manage problems early on at point of delivery and then all the way through the grain chain because um, while it's easy to get a falling number report back early on in harvest, as harvest progresses and you have more and more trucks that line up at the elevators or you're just trying to move that that um, train load or that truck load down to the port, um, you know, it gets really busy (laughs) and really hectic. And so if there is a way that takes less time, um, I I think that, you know, the elevators are really, really eager um, to try this out and and to use it. So I think that it will also, from the standpoint of research, basic research, hopefully give us a better idea of how this enzyme alpha amylase is regulated during germination and during weather events that cause high levels of expression. Um, And then that information can then be used as part of the breeding efforts to prevent it from happening in the future. All right. So these elevator operators who are just itching to get their hands on it, when when are they going to get their hands on it? (laughs) That's a great question. So, um, Actually, we're so our industry partner right now is in their feasibility phase. Um, and like I said, this this field season, they are in the process of calibrating the rapid test that is being developed currently. Um, we are hoping to see something this fall. Um, so what we are doing, uh, you know, harvest will be over by the time that we have something in hand, but we are all hoarding samples <laughs> so we can, you know, through the winter actually evaluate performance so that um, by the time our next field season comes around, we'll have something in hand that can be used in real time. All right. Excellent. So not too far off. Either. No, no. It's it's the... It is vastly quickly approaching, yes. Okay. Yeah. Well, I look forward to having you back on the program next year where you can tell us how, how, how it's all going because I think this is a very important topic for many of 
our growers and the industry in eastern Washington. So thanks for working on it, and thanks for sharing your information with us today. Absolutely. And, you know, hopefully in the future we can also have some of the other folks on for um, updates about the FFAR project, um, some of their key roles and yeah, we're happy to do this. Okay, and is there, there going to be a place where people can go to find out what's happening? Like, is the FFAR project going to have a website or a web page somewhere? Or? Yeah. So what we're doing right now is we are um, we're in the process of trying to coordinate that effort. Um, a lot of the information that will be um, acquired through the project will be shared uh, on public websites. So um, right now the strategy is through like the small grains website at WSU and through our stakeholder website. So Highland Grain Growers and McGregor Company. And there will also be an effort um, with the Washington Grain Commission also to share information as well. Okay. We'll yes. try to get the, that, that uh, information into the show notes when we have it. So great. All right. Thanks, Amber. Thanks, Drew. Thanks for joining us and listening to the WSU Wheat Beat Podcast. If you like what you hear, don't forget to subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. If you have questions or topics you'd like to hear in future episodes, please email me at drew.lyon, that's L-Y-O-N, at wsu.edu. You can find us online at smallgrains.wsu.edu and on Facebook and Twitter at WSU Small Grains. The WSU Wheat Beat Podcast is a production of Connors Communications and the College of Agricultural, Human, and Natural Resource Sciences at Washington State University. I'm Drew Lyon. We'll see you next time. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed by guests of this podcast are their own and does not imply Washington State University's endorsement.